All right, John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. After two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and he begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people believe, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And he inquired as to the time when his son got better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time that Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. All right, before I get preaching, I'm going to ask a question. Does anyone know, is this water from today? Can I drink this? Here it goes. If I'm gone by the end of the sermon, you know what happened. Nope, I got it. <laughs> All right. So today we are continuing our series on uh, the Gospel of John. And we are looking at the third story in a row where Jesus interacts with different people about their faith. And that's not a coincidence. John has put these stories together on purpose. He's trying to tell us something. He's actually trying to show us by the order of these, these conversations that Jesus has come to save all people. So first he went to Nicodemus, the Jewish leader. And then last we saw he went to the Samaritan woman. Now he's coming to a Gentile official. And, and Jesus is pursuing each of these very different people because he is a savior of all people. He's the savior of the world. There is nobody who is off limits for him. Now what sets this story apart, the one we just read through, is that we get to see this man in just a, a span of a few lines go through a, a whole journey of faith. In just, I don't know how many verses it was, uh, what, 11 verses, we see this guy go from looking for a miracle man to having such a deep faith that his entire household is converted on his testimony. And while that story, that experience for him is, is unique to him, I think there's a lot of things we can learn from this story that is true of everybody who comes to faith. Uh, and so that's what I want us to look at this morning. I want us to see how in this story we find out that one, there are a lot of obstacles to faith. Two, that the journey of faith has a lot of ups and downs. And three, that true faith is never a blind faith. 
So first of all, there are many obstacles to our faith. Um, when we open up this passage, Jesus, he's on the move again. So there's been a lot of movement around the last few chapters, Jesus going from one town to the next, and, and here is no different. He is moving from Samaria back to Cana. And if you remember Cana, that's the town where he was at the wedding. That's where he turned the water into wine. It's where this, the miracles kind of started to get going. Um, and so here's a little map. I don't know if you can see that at all, but uh, this shows what's going on. So we're in Cana now, um, and Capernaum is way over here. So even though the story we're reading about is, is here, the miracle that takes place is 17 miles away. It's about here. And it's kind of an uphill trek to go from the, the sea up to the, this little mountain at Cana. And that's important because John wants us to know those details. That's the situation. And, and here's what's going on in the story. We have a guy, and he is a royal official. He is from Capernaum. And he has heard that this guy Jesus is out there, and he's doing some amazing things. He's doing some great miracles, and guess what? He needs a miracle. His son is in need of a miracle. His son is dying. He's on the verge of death. And so this man is desperate. There's a lot of things in our passage that tell us he's desperate. One, it tells us that when he went to Jesus, he begged him to come and heal his son. Also, when he, he says, sir, come down before my child dies, he uses this, this, this word in the Greek for child that's it's like a diminutive word. He's like, come down before my, my precious little son dies. It also, of course, you, you know it by the fact that he just made this journey. He walked 17 miles uphill on foot because he heard rumors that this guy might be able to do something. This is his last hope. You can probably imagine what that feels like. Maybe some of you have had to experience that, that firsthand feeling of helplessness, of worry, of anguish, because your child is not doing well. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded that when my son was really small, like really, really small, under a year old, he had an extremely high fever. And we ended up having to take him to the hospital, and they gave him a spinal tap. Has anybody ever seen this done? with an infant, they basically bend your child in half to stick this giant needle into their spine. And it, it was terrifying. I remember that, that feeling, watching that being done and, and, and realizing that I was helpless. And that was in perhaps the greatest hospital for children in the whole world. Imagine how this guy felt in the ancient Mediterranean. Prior to modern medicine, the sense of hopelessness. And then, when he comes to Jesus, that's where he is. He's in this moment of complete weakness. This guy, this miracle worker, it may be his last chance. That was probably disorienting for a guy who is called a royal official in this passage. A man who likely had a lot of resources. If, even in our passage, we read that he has multiple servants who work for him. This guy probably had a pretty high standing in the community. He 
probably had a lot of power. Actually, let's think about this guy for a moment because I think that's important. When you read the stories of the Gospels, when we read about the kinds of people who are usually around Jesus in these stories, it's usually not people like this, right? It's not usually royal officials. It's not usually people with power. It's not usually people with a lot of standing. Those aren't the people that hang out with Jesus most of the time. Who are they? Well, it's like fishermen, prostitutes, tax collectors. It's people like the Samaritan woman that we saw last week. The people who don't expect the seat of honor when they come into the feast. And then when we find these people like the royal official, when we encounter people in the Gospels who are wealthy, people who are upright, people who are religious, people who are powerful, those people actually, they tend to have a hard time with Jesus, don't they? Why is that? Well, I think one thing that we see all throughout the Gospels, one of the greatest obstacles to our faith is the feeling of self-sufficiency. That feeling, you know what I'm talking about, that feeling where you say, well, I'm fine. My life is fine, and, and whatever problems I do encounter, odds are I can handle them. And, of course, self-sufficiency, if you've got money, that helps, right? Money can be a big part of this idea that I'm doing all right. I, I think in our society where we live, money is probably one of the biggest obstacles that we have to our own faith. Because we look at money the same way we look at God. We look at money to give us the same things that God is meant to give us. We look at money and we say, well, if I have money, I have security for my future. If I have money, then I can have comfort. If I have money, then I can have happiness. Money, when we have it, it can become who we are. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, pastor, sounds like a great problem to have. That's, that's not the challenge that I'm facing. But another crazy thing about money is you don't have to have a lot of it for it to rule your life. You don't have to have money for it to be standing in as your God. We can still look to money to give us security, to give us a future, to give us hope, to give us an identity, even when we don't have much. I mean, that's a place where I think I can confess to you all, that's something that I struggle with a lot. That even recently, uh, you know, we just had one of those days where a lot of bills came the same day. And our, our bank account went below an, a certain number that I didn't like to see. And, and I, I got anxious. I, I, I became kind of tough to be around that day if you talk to Melissa. And why? Well, the truth is I wasn't anxious about reality. I'm not starving. Our family's doing just fine, but, but I realized that day that, that money sometimes is more than just money to me. Money is, it's about self-sufficiency. It's about being able to rely on myself and myself alone. It's, be, it's about not needing anybody else's help. I'm a pastor. I say I trust God to provide for me. I trust God to give me everything I need. But I'll tell you what, sometimes my relationship with my bank account tells a different story. 
Now, for this guy, this man we're reading about, it's possible that he lived his life up to this point without a lot of need. This is the kind of guy who probably had a hard time believing he needed a savior. He could do a lot of things on his own. But in this moment, when he was finally faced with the loss of a child, well, he had to see the limits of his power. Right? He had to recognize that he was finally in a situation that he could not control. He came up to a moment where he needed help that was beyond himself. And as scary as that sounds, the truth is, every single one of us, if we're going to come to faith, we have to come to a moment like that. We all have to get to that point where we see our own limitations, where we realize that we cannot go any further on our own strength. I mean, isn't that the point of the cross? Isn't that the point of the gospel message that you can't do it on your own? That you can't be good enough? That your goodness is an illusion? That your security is an illusion? That your, your power in this life, eventually it's going to run out? That your life is going to run out? It's only a matter of time. There are all kinds of things that can be obstacles to our faith. There's all kinds of things that can prevent us from seeing that we need Jesus. Things that can stand in as our God. But once you get to a moment like this, like this man was facing that day, where, where you realize just how powerless you actually are, how fragile, how dependent, how needy you are in life, well then, you're ready to meet Jesus. It's like that old hymn says, the only thing that he requires is that we see our need of him. The only thing he wants from us is that we see how truly needy we actually are. There's a lot of obstacles to faith, but once we come to faith, the second point is that journey comes with a lot of ups and downs. The journey of faith has a lot of ups and downs. As, as we've read through John, I don't know if you've been observing these stories and thinking about them, but have you noticed that Jesus, when he speaks, sometimes he says really jarring things. Sometimes he has unexpected responses to some of these conversations. Uh, do you remember, like, uh, last week, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, he, she comes to him and he says, uh, I'd like to have some of this living water. And Jesus says, go get your husband. Or Nicodemus, a couple of weeks ago when we read about him, he comes to Jesus and he says to him, hey Jesus, we, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. Nobody could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And here's the same thing. This guy, he comes to Jesus begging to heal his son, and Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. What's going on? What's happening 
in all of these interactions? What is Jesus doing with these kind of non sequitur responses to the conversation? Well, in every single one of those stories, he's doing the exact same thing. What Jesus is doing in those interactions is he is redirecting the conversation back to the thing that actually matters. And so for Nicodemus, he says, it doesn't matter if the other leaders respect me. The only thing that is important is that you know me as Savior. You need to be born again. For the Samaritan woman, he says, you say you want this living water, but your life says something else. You need to put down that sin and come to me. And here, he's talking to the royal official, and he does the same thing. He's, he tells him, you're coming to me for a miracle. You are coming to me to fix things, to restore the equilibrium. You want me to make your life easy again. But that's not what I'm here for. You must believe in me, not just what I can do for you. And it's worth noting, right, that isn't in the plural. Jesus doesn't say to the man, unless you believe. He says, unless you people believe, unless you people see the miracles, you will never believe. So that means, you know, Jesus is talking not just to this one guy, but he's talking to the whole crowd around him. And by extension, he's not only talking to that crowd, he's talking to us. He's talking to everybody, whoever observes this conversation in the future. And what's he saying? Well, he's challenging us. He's asking us, are we really looking for a savior? Are we looking for Jesus? Or do we just want somebody to make our life a little easier? To this guy, he's essentially saying, yes, yeah, I can heal your son. But what you need is more than a healthy child. What you need is a relationship with your creator who loves you, who knows you. Now, don't get me wrong. God answers prayer. God wants to hear our prayers. He wants us to come to him with our needs, right? Thank God he answers our prayers. The last couple of Saturdays, I'm thankful for that, right? As we're sitting watching these Carolina games, you know, getting a little out of hand. Maybe a few prayers got shot up from our living room. And, you know, God, he gives good gifts to his children. Amen? <laughs> UNC headed to the almost, you know, Elite Eight this afternoon. And, you know, I'm grateful. But what our souls really need is not just some temporary blessing. What our souls really need is not just a moment to celebrate, but we need the everlasting joy of spending eternity in the presence of our Creator. And so Jesus rebukes this guy, and he rebukes the crowd, because they're, they're after the wrong thing. They're after the wrong thing. And maybe the craziest thing is the response. It says this royal official, he says, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus says, Go, your son will live. Actually, maybe a better translation is, Your son lives. Right now, your son lives lives. Now, this was not a common occurrence. This guy, we're told that he took Jesus at his word and he departed. 
And maybe we read this and we think, well, yeah, sure, it was Jesus. Of course, you, you take him at his word. But this is unheard of stuff. Even in the, the world of, of the Bible, if you go through the Old Testament and you look at some of the most impressive miracles, this kind of thing doesn't happen. The great miracle workers like Elijah or Elisha, they don't just speak and things happen 20 miles away. They have to be present. That's why this guy is saying, come with me. Please come back to my place so that my son can live. But here in a moment, he speaks. And it happens. And he believes. He believed. How much did he believe? Well, he believed enough to turn around and head back 17 miles back to his house. It would probably have taken him you know, up to the point of, of the evening, he probably would have had a slept, slept somewhere in between Capernaum uh, and, and Cana. He believed, though. And it was the beginning of, of this life of faith. At that moment, he believed that Jesus was who he said he was. But you have to wonder what that faith was like at that moment, right? You have to wonder what it was like in between the time when he heard the confirmation that it had really happened. I came to faith when I was 11 years old. So I came to faith as a kid. I hadn't really gone to church much growing up, but my kids, they, my, my parents put me into a Christian middle school. And in my first year at that school, there was a Bible teacher, and she told us in class that if we would just trust in Jesus as our Savior, we could be with God forever. And that sounded pretty good to me. And so I, I went home in my bedroom by myself, and I prayed a prayer of a kid who's never been to church before. <laughs> my prayer was, God, uh, I heard about you today, and Jesus, I'd love for you to come into my heart, or whatever that lady was talking about. That was my prayer of salvation. But that was the moment of my faith. It wasn't some great sermon. It wasn't this very persuasive book, some argument somebody gave me. In fact, I bet that teacher, she probably wouldn't even remember that. But that's what God used to plant the seed of faith in my heart. And I had faith at 11 years old. But it was a young faith. Compared to my faith today, it was a lot different. It was a faith that had never seen God work. It was a faith that had not seen God hold my marriage together for 15 years. It was a faith that had not followed God as I planted a church or as I've tried to pastor people. It was a saving faith. But it was a young faith. And so I think about this man's faith as he's headed back home. 17-mile journey, walking back saying, I believe Jesus. I believe Jesus is who he said he is. I believe Jesus did what he said he did. But he hasn't seen it yet. And then we read in verse 51, it says, While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired what time, when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday. At one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And then the father realized that was the exact time 
when Jesus had said, your son will live. Now, that's powerful, right? That, that testimony of what God has done. This is a moment when that young faith becomes pretty quickly a tried and proven faith. And the reason I bring it up is because that really is the reality of what it's like to live with Jesus. That's what it's like to follow Jesus with your life. Once you finally get past those obstacles, once you finally look past those false saviors and really trust Jesus with your life, there's still a lot of ups and downs. You're still going to have moments of fear and doubt and uncertainty that you've got to wrestle through. There are moments when you're going to feel maybe like that man felt walking down the street, just putting one foot in front of the other, heading towards your destination, saying, I believe the promise, but I'm waiting for the proof. I believe the promise, but I can't wait till I see it with my own eyes. And if you're in that place right now, maybe you are. I just want to encourage you, keep walking. Keep putting one foot in front of the other because his promises are true. Your faith is not in vain. And one day, what you are trusting in right now, you're going to see with your own eyes. One day, maybe not too long from now, you're going to be with Jesus face to face. So there's obstacles to our faith. There are ups and downs to our faith. But the third thing that we see here is that real faith, true faith, it's not blind faith. The man in our story, the royal official, believed by faith. But he didn't believe apart from any evidence. He didn't trust Jesus without any kind of proof whatsoever. There was reason required for him to make this choice. It wasn't a blind faith, right? You know there's a difference between faith and, and blind faith. In our households, all of our kids, their bedrooms are up on the second floor. So our bedroom's down on the first floor in the kitchen and all the other stuff. So you can imagine we don't see their, their bedroom all the time. Um, but, you know, we tell them to do their chores and to, to clean up before they go outside. And so they, you know, come running down the stairs, singing supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, you know, ready to head out the door. And we stop them and we say, have you cleaned your room? And 90% of the time, they're going to say, yeah, I've cleaned my room. <laughs> and of course, you know, the reality is about maybe 10% of the time, maybe 0% of the time, <laughs> they've actually cleaned their room. Now, of course, I could just take them at their word as they head out the door. But unfortunately, at this stage in their development process, that is faith apart from reason, right? That I could choose to believe them, but, but there is there's really no evidence to support that belief. And chances are I'm going to be disappointed. This royal official, though, the guy we're reading about in our story, when he believed the proclamation of Jesus that your son lives, he believed with reason, not apart from reason. He had proof. He had the testimony of all these other people who have already talked about the great things that Jesus has done. 
And not only that, he met Jesus. He had this firsthand interaction with him, and he judged him to be who he said he was. And then later, at the end of this passage, it says that he and his whole household believed. Well, why did they believe? Well, because when when the father came home and when he told the story, they'd seen the son healed. They hadn't seen any of the stuff Jesus did. They weren't present for this story, but they believed his testimony. It was reasonable, based on what happened, that they could trust the evidence that they'd seen. Now, you might be saying, well, sure, yeah, they believed, but they had this amazing miracle. You know, I'd believe if I had something like that to look at. What proof do I have? What's going to ground my faith? Well, I'm going to be honest. I think we today have a lot better reason to believe than he did. Because we are on this side of the cross. We actually get to see what Jesus did. We got to see where his ministry was headed and, and what he accomplished, right? We know way more than this guy knew about Jesus. We don't just have the testimony of a a few random people who've said this guy can do miracles. We have the witness of, of all of Scripture. We have the evidence of the cross and the empty tomb. We have the good news that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. Look, we've got the witness of all of human history. Do you understand, the world we live in is literally split in half between before Jesus rose from the dead and after. That's how we keep track of time. We have the testimony of God's people, the church. We have the the news that that his followers went from a, a handful of scrappy fishermen to billions of people around the world spanning thousands of years. And more importantly than all of that stuff, we have the Holy Spirit, who God gives us, who comes into our hearts and cries out, Abba, Father, who testifies to us that God is who he says he is. True faith is never blind faith. God gave us rational minds because he wants us to use them. Even this miracle, do you notice? This passage is written so that you would believe. John says that. At the end of this book, he says that that every sign in this book is recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing him, you may have life in his name. And he goes out of his way. At the last part, he says, this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea. To Galilee. He says, This is a sign that I'm giving you so you will believe Jesus is who he says he is. Think about it. He says 1 p.m. This happened at 1 p.m. Why would he put that in there? Because that's when it happened. This was an earthquake moment in this family's life. And they remembered that it took place at 1 p.m. Have you ever had something like that happen? Have you ever been through an event so powerful that for the rest of your life you remember exactly where you were when it took place? Well, they did. 1 p.m. 
So when John recorded it, he recorded it not just as a miracle, but as a sign. This is pointing us to a God that we can trust, a God that we can believe in. This is calling us to a faith that can stand up to tests. Not a blind faith, but a real faith, a faith that can handle your doubts, that can handle your questions, a real faith that can be tested and tried. And so if you're here this morning, and that's you, if you're here and you're wondering, can I really trust? If you're wondering if you can, can stop waiting and really come to Jesus in faith, well, I want to encourage you to do it. Come. Come to him, even with your doubts and your fears, because he can handle your doubts. He can handle your questions. Now, I'm assuming, though, that since we're at church, we got a lot of Christians here. And we probably have a lot of people who know exactly this man's story. Some of you have a faith that is tested and proven and tried. You know what it's like to have overcome those obstacles to your faith. You know what it's like to live through some of those ups and downs. Anybody here like that this morning? Anybody here have a faith that's been tr tried and tested and proven? Yeah, I see some hands. I see some hands. Well, that's you this morning. I just want to encourage you to share your story. Tell people what God has done for you. We know that this thing happened at 1 p.m. because this man told the whole world. His testimony, it went forth with power. Not just to his house, his whole family believed, right? But even now, here in 2022, we're still standing around talking about what God did for this guy. And I know some of you, God has done great things for you. So my question is, who's going to know the stories of God's faithfulness to you when you're 20? Who is being compelled to believe because of your eyewitness account? My challenge to you this morning is that just that you would go and share those good stories. Share that good news. Find somebody who doubts and share what God has done for you. Even open up the Bible and, and share this story with them. Show them the story of a God who, who brought this son back from the brink of death. And then tell them about the God who allowed his own son to die so the whole world could be saved. Show them the evidence in your own life, what he's done for you. And let's watch him change the world. Let's pray.